Hello and welcome to this week's Resi podcast on what comes after help to buy. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined today by Vanessa Hale who is Director of Research at BNP Paribas and also the Chair of Urban Land Institute ULI in the UK. I'm joined also by Adam Chalice who's the Director of Living Research at JLL and also by Nick Cuff who is the Land Director at Pocket Living. So um, Nick Cuff, Pocket has been pioneering um, low-cost housing, hasn't it? Housing specifically for first-time buyers. Um, have you benefited from Help to Buy, and if so, how? We've definitely benefited from Help to Buy, Andrew, because what um, what we're already doing at Pocket by offering discounts is is tapping into a cohort of the market which is unlikely to have been able to to get on the housing ladder. And what Help to Buy has enabled us to do is to is to tap in perhaps a little bit deeper into that cohort of single people and couples who are earning modest uh, salaries in London specifically. So, you know, we're talking people on starting around 30,000 to, to around forty to 45,000 and, and the pocket home um, offers them a way on the ladder and with help to buy it offers them a, it offers those people a um, uh, an opportunity not to have um, significant deposits. So that's so pocket homes already at a discount, aren't they? So to explain how it works, just for people that aren't familiar. So the, the sure. So we offer a home which is a compact home. Uh, we we price it at eighty percent of whatever the prevailing market is for for homes in that area. But we also commit to that product being constrained in income terms to people on income set by the Mayor of London and the local authority. So average incomes of our homes are around 40,000. So it, it's, a, it's a home for people who are trying to get on the ladder in, the, in London and want to live somewhere which is quite close to where they work or where they want to play. So specifically in that category of people that are teachers or firemen exactly, or Exactly, yeah. Uh, not, just, not just teachers and things like that, but it's, you know, a lot of public sector workers get on the housing ladder with us, but also a lot of people working in creative industries, uh, working um, in important but maybe less well-salaried uh, industries in the UK or in London, which, you know, aren't city bankers. but, so but more are journalists, key role. more musicians, more that, yeah, artists yeah, yeah. And, and portrait photographers. A younger version of you, Andrew. Uh, that's very kind. Thanks, Nick. Um, moving swiftly on, um, Adam Chalish, um, Nick Cuff described very articulately Pocket's model, and they've obviously got a, a growing niche that's fulfilling a real social need. And I suppose if we look back, not just over the summer we've seen, but over the last couple of years, the the, house, the housing market, particularly the volume houses, have got a very bad rep, really, haven't they? And and part of that has been a perception, not saying it's my view or our view, but certainly there is a perception that help to buy has has, has really driven up profits that have been funneling profits for, for the bosses at the tops of companies. Do you agree with that perception? And, well, and if you do or don't, what what can we do to change it? I, I think, Andrew, it's, that's a reality. I mean, we've certainly seen the uh, the share prices move uh, very, very strongly in favour of the, of the volume builders and, and largely off the back of the, the opportunities that, that help to buy has brought. It's important to remember that help to buy was born out of the uh, the post global recession world where frankly house buyer uh, or house builder uh, sovereignty and, and being able to uh, frankly survive was uh, was a more material issue so um, we're it's in kind an, of gone from a safety net to a jetpack isn't it 
Well, yeah, it was born of a time where, uh, frankly, rescuing the houseboating industry was necessary. And let's not forget that, of course, it employs a huge range of, uh, of folk all through the supply chain. Uh, and those jobs were being lost. It was already already happening. And the, uh, the depth of the crisis was such that, uh, frankly, rescuing some of those firms was, was job one. And I think the problem with that was we didn't really think about what might happen at the other end when markets quote-unquote, normalized. And uh, we, we see the, the byproduct of that now with housebuilders uh, really seeing significant upside. Uh, and rightly, people are saying, well, hang on a second, that's not coming at the, uh, at the behest of, of quality and some other things that we also think are important. So are, are we hooked on it? I mean, is it, is it the property industry's opioid crisis being deliberately provocative <laughs> there um but but are we hooked on helped by and, and and if if we you know if we've soared if we've jetpacked up to the up to the the, the top of, of of the cycle uh, is there a huge risk of falling off a cliff when it when it's when it's stripped away well no i mean i think from a market perspective it's uh, it's possible to uh, to easily overplay the uh, the extent to which helped by has influenced the wider market but from a political standpoint and the housing market is never far away from uh, from politics uh, it absolutely is a drug that uh, politicians have uh, have benefit from because the the unit count, the the homes count, moving from commitments of two hundred towards three hundred thousand homes, has absolutely benefit from help to buy's existence, and it's really hard for politicians to turn the dial off now. And Vanessa Hale, um, do you agree with Adam Chalice? Is, is it is it a case of help to buy votes? Has has this become a too much of a politicized drug? It, it definitely has a, a political slant that I think it, we're going to have a hard time getting away from. That being said, I think some of the volume house builders are looking at their own solutions to, to almost fill the gap in, 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 a, in a way being able to kind of avoid if we go cold turkey, you know, if that plug is pulled, they would still be able to function in a similar type of ilk to, to what they're offering to the markets, which then the what politicians sort of still... I think some of them are still look, are looking at how do we create and use some of these funds that we've benefited from to give back and, and create our own help to buy equivalent, which will allow the, them to be able to still fulfill the housing quotas and then the politicians are happy. And I mean, obviously, we've seen as well, Adam Chalice, um, some companies like Telford moving over completely and, and focusing on, on build to rent. Yeah, I, mean, I think Telford's a really good example of a business that is demonstrating a bit of leadership in trying to diversify. The, uh, the storyline for house builders looking forward with or without help to buy is, is more challenging than it has been in the past. Uh, the you know, build cost inflation is moving moving against uh, against them. Uh, the the rate of, of house price growth is likely to be more moderate. And uh, in order to be uh, a successful business going forward, being able to broaden out the sort of product range uh, is going to be part of the survival. But frankly, it also plays back into the policy imperative. It's exactly where Homes England expects the big volume builders to be. Uh, I think Telford is just leading the way. Um, I mean, going back to the policy, Nick Cuff, you, you've got a bit of a background uh, in politics. You, you used to be on a London council involved with planning. Do you think there's a question that we've yet to answer around fairness? Because some would argue that Help to Buy provides a, a government-backed, taxpayer-funded discount for people who, by definition, are pretty well off. I think you have to go back to 2012 and look where the market was then. And the fact, the fact was that in that market... Um, you needed to have a deposit which was around 20% of the value of your home. 
and the average first-time buyer couldn't raise more than 5%. And moreover, to get to the, the deposits they needed to get to, to access the market, they would have had to probably save for over two decades. Now, that is a fundamental issue of fairness from a home ownership perspective, in the sense that those individuals or indeed many people who were on modest salaries were not able to get on the housing ladder in any way, shape or form. Whereas 20 years ago, they would have been able to. Yes, exactly. So, so it helped by address that fairness to a great degree by reducing the threshold of deposit that you were required to raise. So in, in that regard, I think you know, it's actually been, in some respects, if you focus on that cohort of people, um, a policy which has tried to do something about that. But I think what others are suggesting is right too, that what comes next hasn't really been answered and really help to buy should have been considered in as an aggregate of many other measures, levers and pulleys or whatever you want to call them, to get the house housing sector moving so that when the demand push ended, there was something more to it that would sustain the numbers going forward. And that's not there. For me, that, for me that's the real issue now is, is thinking about uh, what sort of products, whether they're policy-led or whether it's industry-led, as, as Vanessa's rightly suggested, that um, uh, are going to uh, fill that void should that void come. There's no question that affordability, particularly through the deposit, is, uh, uh, is, a, is a problem. Uh, it's not so much about the carrying costs in a low interest rate environment for uh, for first-time buyers. It's about getting that deposit in. And we, we're going to need a solution, uh, whether it's a continuance of a help-to-buy refined uh, or whether it's uh, indeed something else. Well, where do you stand on the, on the numbers angle? Because, I mean, a lot of the, the simplistic uh, points are build load more homes, the prices go down, which is obviously what politicians have been rattling off well, Tell me where you build the homes, though, Andrew. That's the trouble. Well, this is the point, but, but, but politics... I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, as Mark Twain once said, you know, buy land, they're not making it anymore. And that is a fundamental problem. There isn't the land there to build the homes uh, to address the supply side without making some fundamental changes to the structure of the system we're all in, which will be politically burdensome. So like moving you know, London to Teesside, for example. Quite, or build a couple more new towns. And we've struggled with that since Gordon Brown announced the first one about 25 years ago, whenever that was. I mean, in terms of, terms of house price movement, uh, you know, you're talking about trying to turn the Titanic. And that's not, that's not realistic with respect to supply. Supply is important, but it represents a small subset of actual market activity. It's the broader housing market that has a, has a, has a disproportionate impact on where prices go. Ultimately, so people, you're talking about people moving up from first-time buyers to, to second-time third time. Yeah, I mean, well, I think you know, the industry is really good at forgetting that, in fact, there's a, a broader secondary market, uh, which is not the secondary market. In fact, it's the actual market. We focus on the new build space and assume that it you know, has a disproportionate impact on what happens out there. Ultimately, when you're trying to drive supply up towards 300,000 homes, as is the current government ambition, what you're trying to do is uh, ameliorate the rate of growth. Uh, it isn't about turning the market uh, into negative territory. It's trying to get to a point where house prices are moving at a rate that hopefully is not ahead of the rates of, uh, of real wage growth and ideally is, is just behind while still maintaining a sort of positive territory. The yeah, and, and negating a situation like an Oxford or a Cambridge or a London where you're 14, 15 times your, your income. And that's, Absolutely. You know, an egregious example, but that's, that's, that's a normal example now of some of the cities and towns in the country. Um, I mean, are we making some false assumptions there? We're assuming and, and we're stating as government policy that you're somehow a second-class citizen, Vanessa Hale, unless you buy a house. Is that fair? Do you have that in the States? No. 
you, the, the, the variety of tenure, um, I think probably my adjustment of moving to the UK from the States was how many people the focus is, I need to buy a house, I need to buy a house, I need to buy a house. And it was, it was eye-opening because in, in, I'm originally from Chicago, the reality is, is that you could have friends, they have a house, they, they live somewhere. You live you in igloos in you, Chicago, you, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> During the winter, yes. Um, you know, but the reality is, is you don't actually have a conversation of do you own it or do you rent it or are you on shared ownership? It's, it's a place, it's just part and parcel of your life. It's not, it is just not at the same level. That being said, I mean, I think there's an affordability challenge that has coming across and that is across all 10 years. That's a global thing. You're seeing that in every gateway city across the world. So, that might be changing slightly, but I think I think the reality of this kind of you know I must own my home and the you know the home is my castle and it it's a very foreign concept to me as a, an American. But I think the the recognition that that's the only solution and I think when you start looking at a life cycle, we're, we're starting to see people who are downsizing and are openly looking at rental product. And you kind of go, they've owned a home for the past 30 or 40 years, and now they're looking at rental because they like some of the amenities and they like the location and they like the connectivity that makes you think, wait a second, are we forcing people onto this housing ladder with the thought process that they're going to own it for the next 70 years when actually that whole existence might be changing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, a, there's an irony here in that uh, it's only a couple of generations ago that we were a nation of renters in, uh, in this island. And uh, it's only a fairly modern novel concept that home ownership is the gateway to uh, first-class citizen rights. And, uh, and of course, uh, when we had pre-88 Housing Act, the rent controls, we had a literal second-class tenure and it created significant stigma that, uh, frankly, in, in North America and as somebody who grew up in Canada, uh, just didn't exist. Uh, and as a result, I think today Britain needs to have a bit more of a, a maturity about what it means to own or to rent, but frankly to, to have a home doesn't necessarily uh, define you based on the tenure alone. So uh, Nick Cuff, should you uh, pocket, pack up and go home? Do we, do we, should we just focus on renting? I think it's a, it's a combination of things, isn't it? And um, we should always have a, an offer for people who want to be able to get on the housing ladder. But in addition to that, you do need to offer an array of different tenures and different kinds of housing for different kinds of needs. Uh, and any policy that government advocates, which focuses at the detriment for, on one to the detriment of others, is clearly is not good policy because the the society we live in is multifaceted. So um, we shouldn't obviously abandon the aspiration of home ownership, and we should encourage house builders and developers to build homes for sale but we should also be doing many other things to encourage other tenures like retirement living rental potentially co-living in the right places um so there's lots of things that are there which don't get any um airtime because they're um they're not seen by the politicians in number 10 and elsewhere as being the fundamental priority but but i think also i mean one of the things that that pocket living has been pioneering as well is is use of off-site manufacturing working with um, modular manufacturing businesses like, like Vision Modular Systems to create in factories homes, which is obviously then having a positive effect in mitigating the skills crisis we've got in construction. And that, in a wider sense, creates a huge amount of social value. And, and you could then argue that, that where you are receiving support, financial debt, 
support from Mayor of London, that's going and, and solving another social issue that we have in terms of skills, employment, and mm. the construction well, crisis. I think, I think that's, yeah. I mean, the point is, is, is how do you turn a tanker? And obviously, Help to Buy has helped, you know, it's given you, given numbers to the industry, additionality to politicians, but, but actually turning the tanker and getting the capacity across all the sects, all the parts of the industries that we operate in includes asking fundamental questions about what can the construction industry do to um, be more able to meet the demands that we need. And obviously, construction industry, you know, we can go and discuss that for many hours. We're in an office next to Cast Consultancy are trying to get their heads around it themselves. You know, one of the issues we've got is an ageing labour force. And so how do we deal with that? People don't want to work outside uh, in the cold and the elements. The traditional contractors' performance has been questionable in some regards. We've seen some quite high-profile insolvencies. Um, you know, the, the idea of modular is that you take capacity out of a finite labour resource, particularly in the southeast, and you put it in places where there is a, firstly, a richer history of manufacturing, like the Midlands, uh, and also where there is a, uh, a more skilled manufacturing labour force to, to call upon. So, you know, these things are all part of the solution to getting more housing and, and, and more housing supply. And, and, and using, it, it be... using taxpayer-funded subsidies for, for public good, I think, is, is one of the key things. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we were able to talk about the virtues of buying a new-build home uh, and if MMC is the proxy to, uh, to creating better quality homes and you know, sustainable homes, uh, homes that people are really quite proud of, uh, you know, we're in an environment where uh, new-build uh, has not got, uh, frankly, the strongest uh, reputation. And you think of some of the challenges that, uh, that the volume builders are wearing, perhaps on behalf of the industry, but you know, uh, complicit to a degree. Um, MMC has the opportunity to perhaps uh, redress some of the concerns that society has, and you know, frankly, if the perception, their reality with respect, respect, to, uh, respect to ultimately price impacts and, uh, and so on. Wouldn't it be nice if New Build was seen as something aspirational? It's not at the moment. So what, what could make it then? I mean, you're, you're essentially saying that building stuff in factories could help address some of the quality concerns that have been fired in the face of the, the volume-listed house builders of late. Could you then, if we're looking at the successor to help to buy, should these sorts of incentive schemes be used to drive a different kind of construction. So should we, or could we, Adam Chalice, be saying to house builders, you can have help to buy if you invest in factories? Is that one thing you would support? Yeah, absolutely. Where we're using policy, where we're using taxpayer money to, to create uh, homes for society, that's got to come with, um, with some strings attached. And the important thing that everybody in the industry will uh, jump to the defense of with that previous statement I've just made is, of course, you don't want to undermine the rate of delivery in so doing. And, uh, and that's, of course, going to be really important with any policy mechanism that is about trying to drive a different kind of supply, a higher quality supply. You don't want to undermine the rate of, of volume because, frankly, that's what the country really needs. But uh, you know, you think about uh, this conversation through the lens of Grenfell and through the lens of, uh, of some of the other quality issues. And there is no question that the industry needs to change its perception and to a degree needs to change its reality. If so, this is the way of doing so, then great. So Vanessa, how quality perception, um, and what are some of the other policy vehicles that, that, or, or, or directives that you think we could see or, or that you know, the, the new prime minister could look to bring in? Great question. I think that 
you know, beyond the fact of putting in some strings to say, you know, let's look at modular or let's look at new ways and new materials, there's the the pressures that we're seeing from environmental aspects. And I think there is an, with that, also the kind of the well-being elements that come into play. And we're starting to see that kind of aspect of design. And I, sometimes, let's be honest, they're not, not necessarily the most attractive things to look at when it comes to new build. And Well, also zero carbon homes was shoved in the bin around 2010, wasn't it? Yes. And... I, I don't know if you need to go that far, but actually making you know certain metrics slightly more important, I think all of a sudden people have a pride in place. They there's a, a an aspiration of wanting to be there. It gives us a better perception in, in the industry as house builders. It, it, it some so, things to think so about. Making people more accountable to environmental and well-being metrics. I think it's really important that whatever policies that do come in under a new prime minister, though. Um, avoid what we've been doing in the last 10, 15 years since I've been certainly working in the industry, which is rather than you know a new policy coming in and taking something out of the system, we just because I constantly add new things in and new requirements in, but there's no there's no trade-offs and no gives, and so I'm I'm all for um, looking at how we can. Um, make our homes more sustainable, um, uh, more stringent in terms of the environmental requirements. But we do then have to look at what else we're being asked to do as developers and say, actually, is all of the other things necessary? Because at the moment, every year, there is more and more requirements, more regulations that are coming in. It's making it very hard uh, for for developers to do business. And, and you see that in the numbers, don't you? Because you look at 2007, where there were over 50,000 homes that year produced by small to medium-sized developers. I think last year or the year before, um, the amount of homes built by small, medium-sized developers was down at like 18,000. That's a good point. So Adam Chalice, as we draw things to a close, should we then, further to Nick's point, should we target some of these incentives towards specific subsectors? Should they only be, you know, should we accept that the volume house builders have, have got their money and are doing pretty well should we focus it on on small on the small guys and, and should we focus it maybe on housing associations uh, yeah i mean i think there's two pieces to the uh, to the answer i'd want to give andrew one is yes absolutely smes need a, a simplified version they need a, an easier ride through uh through the system uh and of course by definition are delivering on smaller sites that perhaps don't uh, don't warrant the same uh, burden of regulation in order to get through. Planning is the bottleneck at the moment to, to more homes. But I'd want to combine that point with, of course, the uh, the reality that uh, you know, planning decisions are localized. Planning decisions are emotive. They're, they're personal. And it's uh, national policy is all fine, but it's local decision-making that determines whether schemes go through. And there's a capacity deficit with, with planners at the moment. There's, uh, I would argue, perhaps uh, a, a a lack of understanding about what uh, some of the newer products like Build to Rent, like uh, Nick's product, uh, the, the pocket product, what it really means for local people. And frankly, if those solutions are a part of the broad mix, there is no one silver bullet. They've got to be in play, uh, but it requires the sophistication from from the local planning community to be able to to make those decisions. But but I mean, I mean, bringing it back to what comes next after help to buy then I mean, we've uh, just just to kind of go around the room and get your suggestions on this one view from the housing association sphere is that shared ownership 
for them is almost one of the only games in town. Adam Chalash, is that something you buy into? Should shared ownership rise up? I mean, it's been around for 30 odd years. It's not a new thing. It, it isn't a new thing, but it will absolutely uh, gain momentum. We've, we're really clear on that with, with our research that uh, shared ownership will take up a broader Give us some of the numbers. delivery. Uh, gosh, you're going to catch me on the spot here. Um, uh, I don't have the, uh, the specific uh, figures, but we're certainly expecting a, a ratchet up in, in the rate of, uh, of thousands, if not yep. uh, low tens of thousands from, from where we are now. And there's a scope for that to become an institutionally invested product, given you've got obviously income that's backed by, by pretty strong covenants and yeah there is uh, uh, but I, at the same time i'm not sure i want to get overly stuck on uh, on the the role of shared ownership it's a part of the overall story we haven't even picked up the, you know so the let win review land value story and there's a really important piece there for developers to be able to create a bit more headroom by by uh, having greater access to uh, less expensive land, whether that's uh, delivered through public land resources or through through some sort of control. So, so um, you're talking about essentially a, a menu of subsidies and supports that could help mm. us avoiding a cliff edge scenario? W- without question, the, the challenges of delivery are complex and they're very diverse. A one-size-fits-all is a fail. Uh, a menu-type approach, something that a range of products, is absolutely going to give... Uh, the range of delivery bodies and locations a better chance of uh, of doing what they need to do. So, uh, and Nick Cuff, what's your takeaway? What one takeaway of of, of one of the the many solutions that we should be looking at as well, a successor to help to buy? I think as as Adam as Adam, Adam knows, because um, we did some research on this together actually a few years ago, because Pocket has a as a voluminous database of buyers. Um, in London looking to get on the housing ladder. And one thing is clear is that people would rather own 100% of something than a proportion of something and rent the rest. It's it's a good model because it does address some of the aspirations to get on the housing ladder, but it it is a compromise model too. And in higher value areas, it really struggles to work. And and you know I'm talking you know not even that high value but mid mid market areas it struggles now and a lot of local authorities have given up on it and that's that's a key thing here the the perception in the public sector at a local council level is shared ownership isn't actually affordable housing anymore so there's a lot of challenges with it but it is obviously part of the solution um, there's two fundamental challenges that um, we need to address more widely how do we get more land into the system. There isn't enough, and you know there are too many constraints around land use at the moment. And you know there are there are things that could be done. Looking at London as a whole, you know, so six presumption in favour of development in a certain scenario. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, there, we just we, we we're not the planning system is not generating enough opportunities to build houses on it. So we're running out of land. We're also running out of time. So Vanessa Hale, what's your takeaway? And obviously you've got a, a varied experience and, and BNP Paribas Real Estate as a house looks at all kinds of different clients and, and data sets. What's one of the other things that you think we need to consider? Um, I think I probably agreeing with both the guys in the fact of we need a variety. There's no one solution is simply actually... A- I suppose talking at the other end of the spectrum, the downsizing market and understanding how we can do a full life cycle of property, that part is missing. And I think that's the next focus that needs to be there for the for the government. And that means what? Tax rates for people downsizing, capital gains, stamp duty breaks. What do you mean? What specifics? What it's all we- of it because it goes to the exact same thing. There's no one solution. And I think the, you know, 
people who have owned a home for a long period of time are looking to downsize. They may be downsizing for different reasons, equity release, getting, you know, being bank of mom and dad for a child, looking to just actually relocate and, and downsize into a different lifestyle. So there's lots of different drivers behind why people are looking to downsize. So what the solutions might be, I think, again, it has to be a varied measure that the government has to be yeah, considering. I, mean, I completely agree. There's a, a lack of aspiration when it comes to retirement in this country. And, you know, you will know, Vanessa, in, in the U.S., there absolutely are retirement communities that people uh, really want to be a part of. Uh, it feels a bit like God's green room a bit too often in the U.K., and I I'd love to see an environment, a policy environment that supports, uh, you know, a supply-led solution that makes people want to downsize to release those family homes that, of course, ungum the system. So a greater focus on, on the transactional market above first and why is a greater priority for key workers as Pocket have been doing and as Vanessa says a, a more deep dive uh, more of a deep dive approach into tax policy and other changes so lots to think about and, and lots of this stuff will absolutely be picked up at this year's Resi convention so thank you very much to our guests this week Vanessa Hale from BNP Paribas Real Estate Adam Chalice from JLL and Nick Cuff from Pocket and I have continued to be Andrew Teacher at Blackstock thank you very much for listening